You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Here's a distressing headline I stumbled over this morning, one that I'm highlighting here so it doesn't get lost in this week's tsunami of distressing headlines. Texas lawmakers failed to address rising pregnancy-related death rate during their legislative session. Hannah Gold, writing at Jezebel, the feminist news site, was reacting to and signal-boosting, as the kids say, an Associated Press story that, holy shit, did not bury the lead. From the Associated Press, lawmakers in Texas failed to take any significant action to address the state's skyrocketing rate of pregnancy-related deaths just months after researchers found it to be the highest, not only in the U.S., but the developed world. The pregnancy-related death rate in Texas, the numbers of pregnant women dying every year, doubled between 2010 and 2012, a study from the University of Maryland found. Now, in fairness to Texas, a state dominated by anti-woman, anti-immigrant, anti-gay, anti-trans, pro-Trump, pro-police brutality, pro-pollution, pro-climate catastrophe, elected officials who aren't themselves interested in being fair to anyone, in fairness to Texas, maternal death rates rose all over the United States during the same period, but by a percentage point or two. In Texas, maternal death rates doubled which the authors of the report said couldn't be explained, quote, in the absence of war, natural disaster, or severe economic upheaval. Now, they meant a shooting war, of course, obviously, because, you know what, there actually is a war on in Texas, they could have mentioned, and it's not a shooting war, but it is an ongoing war against women in Texas and all other states controlled by Republican televangelists. Legislators in Texas are waging war on women's health care, defunding Planned Parenthood, blocking Medicaid expansion under Obamacare. In 2011 alone, as Molly Redden highlighted at The Guardian, the Texas state legislature, controlled by televangelists, cut $74 million from the state's $111 million family planning budget. So, yeah, there's a war on, a war with casualties and a body count. The news out of Texas is especially galling for those of us whose memories stretch all the way back to March of last year, March of 2016. That's when the Supreme Court heard arguments in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt. Whole Women's Health is a women's clinic in Texas. John Hellerstedt is the commissioner of the Texas Department of State Health Services. Whole Women's Health was challenging Texas's TRAP regulations. TRAP, T-R-A-P, Targeted Regulation of Abortion Providers. The Supreme Court has ruled that women have a constitutional right to abortion, but states can regulate abortion services. TRAP legislation is designed to regulate abortion clinics and services out of existence by creating expensive or impossible mandates around facilities and services. Texas argued before the Supreme Court that the point of its new trap regulations approved in 2013 wasn't to stop women from having abortions or shut down abortion clinics, even though three-quarters of the state's clinics shut immediately after the law was passed. Oh, no, no, no. The point was to protect women's health, to protect women who were seeking abortions. 
Texas's trap law did two things. It required doctors to have admitting privileges from a nearby hospital, and it required clinics to, quote, comply with building regulations that would make them ambulatory surgical centers, as Dahlia Lithwick reported at Slate at the time. The effect of the law would have, quote, required rural women to haul ass across land masses larger than the whole state of California in order to take a pill in the presence of a doctor in a surgical theater. Texas was shredded in court. You're going to want to go look up Lithwick's piece if you want a feminist pick-me-up to start your morning, and be sure to say a prayer for the health and safety of Justices Ginsburg, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Stevens, because Texas's bullshit trap regulations don't make women safer. And they didn't apply as the four feminist justices on the Supreme Court drove home that day to other medical procedures that are far, far riskier than abortion, which is a very safe procedure, safer than carrying a pregnancy to term. Colonoscopies, for instance, have higher complication rates and higher death rates, and you can get one of those at a fucking tasty freeze in Texas. So to recap, Texas Republicans gutted women's health services and then crafted trap legislation that would shut abortion clinics. And they didn't do either of those things because they care about protecting women. If they did, they would have done something about their pregnancy-related death rate when they found out about that. Trap legislation isn't about protecting women. It's about controlling women. We knew that all along. And Texas got caught lying to the Supreme Court about that. But if anyone out there was confused about what trap legislation does or what legislators in Texas are up to, if anyone out there thinks Texas Talibangelists give one single flying fuck about the health or safety of women in Texas, this news has to open your eyes. Texas enacts one set of policies that cause the pregnancy-related death rate to skyrocket at the same time that Texas argues before the Supreme Court that another policy, their trap laws, is necessary to protect women. And shortly after the Supreme Court overturns Texas's trap law, the state learns of those skyrocketing pregnancy-related death rates and does nothing, fuck all, to protect women after learning that. If you're only half paying attention, if you hear about aggressive abortion clinic regulations and think, well, why not an ambulatory surgical center? Better safe than sorry. Look to the actions of the people pushing these regulations. If they claim they're protecting women on Monday and then do nothing about dead women on Tuesday, they were lying on Monday. (sighs) I've said it before. I'll say it again. We talk about Trump all the time. Me too. I'm guilty of it too. But taking back the White House and Congress – That's not enough. We've also got to take back the state houses and the governor's mansions, too. All right. Before we get to the show, I want to say something to all my friends, listeners, and colleagues, people I've had the pleasure of working with in London. I am sorry, and we are sorry. We're sorry for your loss. We're in awe of your courage, your stoicism, your sense of humor. And the majority of Americans who didn't vote for Trump and the overwhelming majority of Americans who disapprove of the shit job he's doing – We are sorry that our president is such a fucking asshole. You don't have an ally in the Oval Office right now. Neither do we, but you have hundreds of millions of allies here in the United States. Okay, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and in the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, Dr. Brianna Helmers joins us. She got a team of researchers to hang around in bars and find out how much alcohol it takes to get a straight guy to think about maybe sleeping with another dude. If you're not already a subscriber to the Magnum, you're going to want to become a subscriber to the Magnum today, savagelovecast.com. Hey, Dan, this is a 27-year-old bisexual woman calling from the Midwest, and I'm having some anal sex problems. I started sleeping with this guy about a year ago. At first, we were super casual and just fuck buddies. 
Eventually, it turned into a really strong friendship in addition to sex. A big part of our sex life is anal. He prefers it over vaginal, and I'd never had anal sex before I was with him. So there had to be a training and exploration aspect of it for me. Here's the problem. After a year of exploring and trying anal sex, with enough lube, the right position, and deep breathing, I can get myself to a point where it's comfortable and even really enjoyable for me. He has a huge cock, so it took a while to get to this point. However, whenever I get too comfortable, you know, that point where it's like all pleasure and little pain, he can't seem to get off. He says I'm just too relaxed and that my ass isn't tight enough at these moments. This kind of blows my mind because he's so big and I know for a fact my ass isn't just some gaping hole. But I'm trying to be open and find a solution. I've tried to do toggles while he's fucking my ass to make myself tighter, but then it can be uncomfortable for me. Conversely, when he gets to the point where it's ideal for him, I'm always in some pain or at least discomfort. His ideal situation is usually little to no lube and me as tight as can be. Again, this is just uncomfortable. So I guess my questions are these. One, how do we compromise? Is pain, discomfort just an aspect of anal that I have to deal with? And two, what are some other ways I can feel tighter for him while still being comfortable for me? I really care about this guy, but it's becoming a problem in our sex life. Hoping he can help. Yeah, no, pain and discomfort are not an essential uh, aspect of anal sex. In fact, the, the standard advice is if you're experiencing pain and it's uncomfortable and it persists, the pain and the discomfort, that you're doing it wrong. The way he wants to do it with a little spit, a little as little lube as possible, yeah, no, that is not – that is not OK. Uh, if that is the only way he can get off during anal, then he's got to learn how to get off differently or get off in some other way. There is, however, a sex toy that I can recommend to you that I've never recommended to a straight girl before and I'm a little afraid to even – Give its name. You can find them at oxballs.com. You can find them at Mr. S. You can find them at other sex toy merchants online. And it, they've got just a such a terrible name. It, it appeals to a certain subset uh, of the gay community. Emphasis on the word sub. Uh, they're called pig holes. You're welcome. And it's like a butt plug that's hollow that has a hole in it. And you can put it in someone. You can insert it into someone's ass. And the hollow part that goes all the way through it is the right size for some people to put their dicks in. And so if you're too loose when you're relaxed enough, you can be loose and relaxed enough to accommodate a pig hole and then he can feel – he can fuck the inside of the pig hole, which is going to provide him with a slightly tighter sensation than your hole when you're relaxed is capable of providing him with. But that does mean you have to incorporate a, a sex toy into the play. It does mean that the sensations he's going to derive, you know, the way his dick is going to feel fucking you is going to be slightly different. A pig hole wrapped around his dick is going to feel different than your ass wrapped around his dick. But – it might help you guys meet somewhere in the middle if you use that tool. There's also the option of kegels during anal where you squeeze and bear down a little bit but not constantly where you grip and release, grip and release, grip and release and maybe that is an option short of getting online, ordering yourself a pig hole and stuffing it into you. If none of that works, if a pig hole isn't acceptable to him and the only way anal is acceptable to him is if you are in pain and you are uncomfortable, then I'm sorry. 
uh, anal isn't acceptable to you and you should make that clear to him that if the only way it works for him is if it's not working for you, then it doesn't work for you guys as a couple and you're going to have to put an end to this beautiful friendship and find new partners or you're going to have to find new and different ways to get each other off. Hi, Dan. So I am a bi girl in the East Coast and I really want to have a threesome and I've been, you know, kind of going around on Craigslist and basically my question to you is if I'm being too picky because I read these posts and they're just ridiculously, um, the grammar, like the spelling and just, it's ridiculous. And I feel like I'm probably being way too picky and just haven't really found any good posts and I you know I've tried set life and it was awful and I don't really have any like exes or anything that I could do this with I know that's what you usually suggest so I mean yeah I've I've reached out to a couple of these people on on Craigslist and in response all I get is just picks and stats just no other like, oh, great, like, good to hear from you, anything like that, just picks and stats. And, like, other posts are, like, 30 years old and older, which I'm not, and just kind of, like, I'm looking at it right now, and one of the titles is All Five Fingers. Hello, I like to finger. Can only get three fingers in my girl. She wants to find a girl that can take her all five it's just ridiculous. I mean, maybe I'm being too judgmental, which in that case, you let me know. But I just really want to do this and I'm having trouble finding it. To paraphrase Gandhi or to paraphrase a misquote of Gandhi that's popular with white people in America, be the three-way ads you want to see in the world or you want to find on Craigslist or find on FetLife. Like tends to attract like. If what you want is someone literate and smart and can use punctuation properly and isn't just seeking pics and stats or slinging pics and stats online, then put up a nice, florid, lengthy, articulate, perfectly punctuated post of your own saying – Exactly what it is that you're looking for. And if what you want is a three-way and you are a single woman, there are a lot of people out there looking for you. Single women who want to have three-ways with opposite-sex couples are called – everybody say it with me – unicorns, mythical beasts, really hard to find. And everybody is looking for you and people will give you what it is that you want to make you comfortable with them as prospective partners because you are the rare, sought-after – I don't want to use the word commodity because it's so commodifying, but commodity. So say what it is that you want. Say it the way you want it said. When people write to you and they just throw some pics and stats at you, write them back and say, I need more than pics and stats. I need a sense of who you are as a person. Reassure them that you're for real. Maybe throw a picture their way so they know that you're for real and that you're not a fake or a flake. A lot of people are short and quick and abrupt with these kinds of exchanges online because there are so many people out there who have no intention of ever actually meeting and are just seeking those pics really. Uh, and are time wasters and they don't want to get into a long, extended, literary back and forth, this exchange of letters uh, when it may ultimately lead nowhere. So they tend to, particularly people who have been burned that way, 
be rather quick and be rather short. But the only way to really get into your four real pants and at your real pussy is for them to put a little effort and elbow grease and the proper use of semicolons and colons and commas and parentheses and periods and paragraph breaks into the emails that they're sending to you. Say that. Ask for that. Make that demand. And because you as the single woman, you as the unicorn are in demand, people will – the people you would want to sleep with will rise to meet your demands. Hi, Dan. I am a 26-year-old uh, heteroflexible female living on the East Coast and I've been dating my 24-year-old boyfriend for about six months. And recently, he revealed to me that he had gone snooping through my old uh, calendars and journal and had read a couple of unflattering entries about him and then entries about old boyfriends and a list of people I had slept with and lots of stuff that you really don't want to see as a significant other, but that I can't be blamed for having in my private journal. Um, and we have since sort of worked through that as best we can. But I went moving through his phone because it was available and I tend to be passive aggressive that way. Um, and I found that he had secretly recorded us having sex in his room and had saved the video. So he had had this uh, camera in his room because his sibling and he don't get along and she had been going in and taking his things and stealing from him. So he installed this camera, which I knew about when it was installed and I was very careful about covering it up when I was over there, which was okay with him. But then apparently it was it was some sort of subscription service and it was he told me it was no longer functioning, that it didn't it wasn't he hadn't subscribed, the free trial had ended, it wasn't functioning. So I had since forgot about it because I thought it wasn't working, but I found out from going through his phone that it was still on and it was still recording and that he had um, saved these videos, which are supposed to auto-delete after two weeks, but he had saved them and emailed them to himself. So I am wildly uncomfortable with having been recorded. I think it's super dangerous for him to have that those kind of materials in his possession should things go wrong with us. Um, and although I had known previously that I had been recorded and we had like watched it back together and then deleted it together, I didn't know about these new instances and I didn't know that he had saved stuff. So I would like to know what you think. I like him a lot. He's super funny. We have a really good time together. He is very sensitive and, you know, we have our ups and downs, but I love him and, I'm conflicted. You got to dump the motherfucker uh, already. You've got to dump the motherfucker instantaneously. You were wildly uncomfortable with what he did. What he did was a, such a violation of your privacy, such a violation of your rights and perhaps depending on where you live, uh, a, a crime. In some places, it is a crime to record people without their knowledge and it blows my mind that – you describe everything that's going on with you two, the snooping and then the secret taping and you then say you're worried and you think it might be dangerous for him to have these recordings should things go wrong with us. 
what's his future tense shift? Things have gone wrong with you guys. Things are wrong right now. Wrong has been done. You are in wrong territory. You crossed the border into wrong a long time ago. Wrong is now. And he has wronged you. He has violated you, violated your privacy uh, in a way that by my reading would be unforgivable. I think you owe it to yourself and, and perhaps even to him, to this man you love, to dump him because he shouldn't think that this is something that he can do to anyone and be forgiven for or get away with. So dump him. But you love him and you like him a lot and he's super funny and you have a good time together except when he or at home journaling and saying shitty things about him because he's made you mad and then he's snooping into that journal and reading those shitty things and pissing you off, which prompts you to do some snooping. And in your case, retroactively, you're snooping justified. Sometimes snooping based on what you find is justified. Snooping is never OK except in hindsight. Snooping is always wrong unless you find something that retroactively justifies that snooping as you did. You found these videotapes that need to be erased or these videos that need to be deleted or erased or whatever the fuck and you should insist that he delete and erase them and you should also ask that he open his email accounts in front of you to make sure that if he's deleting them off his computer and off his hard drive, they don't also exist in his email accounts. It's the problem with video these days. It's so easily replicated and stored. Sometimes people delete videos. They don't even realize they still have copies lurking in other formats uh, in other areas on their computers, their email accounts, or on their phones. And you should break up with him. You should DTMFA. There, there's no getting back from this. But you love him. OK. Well, break up with him strategically. Break up with him for three months. Break up with him for six months. Break up with him for six years. And then circle back and if he is still super funny and you guys meet back up and he's older and wiser and not such a fucking selfish manipulative lying asshole anymore, at least where hidden cameras come in, maybe then you could take back up with the older and wiser version of him who wouldn't do this sort of thing. But the present-day version of him who would do this sort of thing, you got to dump him. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 25-year-old straight female who's been in a relationship now for five years. And an issue that I've had for uh, quite some time is my fiancé loved to play with my nipples, which is very normal, but my nipples are really sensitive. And um, they're so sensitive that it actually hurts when somebody even touches them. And it's something he really, really loves to do. It turns them on so much. But... I personally can't stand it, and I haven't been able to say anything for five years. And how do I tell him, now that we're going to be getting married, that I don't want him to touch my nipples? I know that it seems easy. This is something, like I said, he really loves to do, and I want to turn him on. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on this. This is another one of those questions where the answer is the time machine that I do not have and that does not exist. You need to go back in time five years ago or four years and nine months ago and tell your brand new boyfriend that you don't like having your nipples touched, that it, they're too sensitive and any touch is painful and that being with you means being with 
someone being with a woman, having a girlfriend whose nipples he doesn't get to touch. And if the touching of nipples is really important to him, if it's fundamental and essential to his sense of sexual fulfillment, then you're the wrong girlfriend for him because it's painful. And presumably this guy that you like well enough to want to marry doesn't want you to be in pain, doesn't want you to be grinning and bearing it every time you guys are intimate. And that is what you've been doing for five fucking years. You've been grinning and bearing it. You've been allowing him. And if he's not an asshole, this he will be mortified by this. You've been allowing him to hurt you and you've been sucking it up. And now you're in a position where you're going to have to say something. Certainly before you get married, you have to say something. You have to level with him. You have to tell him the truth. And if I were him, if I were your boyfriend and you told me this and I wasn't an asshole and I like to think I'm not an asshole, I will feel terrible. And I will feel terrible for a while and then some part of me is going to begin to feel a little bit angry, not maybe with you but with this because – you allowed me to do something to you for so long that was causing you pain and you never told me that. And for I have to look back over the last five years, every time we had sex, every time we had sex, I did something that ruined it for you. And I would have stopped if I'd known to stop, but you never told me to stop. And if you didn't, you know, if you weren't attempting to communicate with him physically, if you weren't grimacing and trying to point them away, if you were playing along and pretending you enjoyed this when you didn't so I wouldn't feel bad, oh my god, I'm going to feel terrible. So he needs to know now. So he needs to know now what's been going on and like I said, if he's not an asshole, he's going to feel awful and even if he isn't an asshole, there's going to be a moment where he's a little upset with you and I think rightly so because you kind of allowed him to do something kind of shitty that he didn't realize was shitty and that he would have stopped doing if he's not an asshole instantaneously the moment you spoke up but you never spoke up. So you have to allow him to be a little bit upset with this, with what's been going on for the last five years, what you've allowed to go on for the last five years. And if nipples are hugely important to him, if tit play is hugely important to him, if not being able to play with his wife's nipples is a deal breaker for him, then you two shouldn't get married. I can't imagine that that would be the case. I hope there are other erogenous zones on your body that he enjoys playing with as much or more than he enjoys playing with your nipples. I hope there are erogenous zones on his body that you enjoy playing with and that your entire sexual script, your entire erotic connection doesn't start and end at your tits or your nipples and that you can find – workarounds or jerkarounds or something else to take its place and if so, then get the fuck married. But if not, then yeah, you don't want to be in a situation where you feel pressured for the rest of your life to put up with a kind of sexual stimulation that you find insanely unpleasant or painful. But I'd hate to see a loving couple, two people who really like each other, part over something that your boyfriend may regard as trivial. He's not going to regard this as trivial. I don't want to call it your deceit as trivial. This omission, this lie of omission that you've been telling him for five years, you've allowed him to think that this is okay. You've allowed him to think for five years that this will be a regular part of your sex life for the rest of your lives. You've allowed him to think perhaps that you enjoyed it. Maybe you even pretended to enjoy it. And now he's got to look back over the last five years and think, did she enjoy anything? Uh, communicate. 
Tell your partners what it is that turns you on. Tell them how you like to be touched. Tell them where you like to be touched. Tell them how you don't like to be touched. Tell them where you don't like to be touched. Don't let someone touch you in a way for five years that pains you and then tell them. Because that, if your partner ain't an asshole, that will pain him. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at-Risk Youth. Um, I'm a 37-year-old bi lady living in New Jersey, and I'm calling with a question about kink shaming and resistance politics. So I'm very involved in my local indivisible group, and we're putting pressure on our congressman, Chris Smith, who is notoriously anti-choice. And he's also the guy who tried to redefine rape when writing a law to restrict abortion access. He also has famously said that he does not construe homosexual rights as human rights. So as a strong believer in reproductive justice and one mom of a two moms and two kids family and a sexual assault survivor, knowing that this man represents me in Congress makes my skin crawl. So we've been organizing, producing a video series that skewers Smith, making daily coordinated calls, holding weekly meetings at his office and holding town halls since he's too scared to hold one himself. At the most recent town hall, one of our speakers said to keep the pressure up on him to appear and suggested that we use a humorous image of Smith with a gag over his mouth and suggesting that that was why he couldn't come talk to us. Immediately, my mind went to a poster or a billboard with an image of Smith sporting a candy red locking ball gag. And I started thinking about how I could produce this particular little piece of agitprop. But now I don't know if that would be exploitative or kink shaming. I'm always a little uncomfortable with the images of Putin and Trump kissing, for example, because I think to make its joke, it has to do so at the expense of gay men. But I don't get the same feeling from the Mike Pence lookalike who wore shorty shorts to raise money for LGBTQ causes and Planned Parenthood. My wife thinks that the image of Smith with a ball gag might be misread as making fun by suggesting that he's gay. Um, but even if that's not the case, I'm worried that I might be making my joke at the expense of the BDSM community. I'm not the part. I'm not a part of any scene, and I don't know if any of my friends are kinky. And so I thought I'd ask you. I mean, who better to call when you have a question that relates to progressive politics and BDSM, right? So Dan, am I good, or should I find another way to call out my misogynistic, anti-choice, homophobic member of Congress? Before we get to the particulars and the very hilarious particulars of your question. Let's jump back a couple of weeks to Stephen Colbert's controversial monologue where he called Donald Trump's mouth Vladimir Putin's cock holster. And people on the right, right-wingers, conservatives, professional homophobes screamed and yelled, pointed out how homophobic, terribly homophobic this joke was and started a fire Colbert hashtag on Twitter that trended, where they were calling for Stephen Colbert to be fired because he made a homophobic joke. Republican politicians who craft homophobic policies, oh, they shouldn't be fired, and say homophobic things, they shouldn't be fired. But Stephen Colbert, for making what they argued was a homophobic joke, should be fired. I agree with Michael Musto, columnist, who tweeted out, Mr. Stephen Colbert wasn't making fun of gays, he was making fun of Trump and Putin, and his joke definitely shamed two huge homophobes. When Stephen Colbert called Donald Trump Vladimir Putin's cock holster, yeah, it played with images of gay sex. But it tormented two notorious huge homophobes, Trump and Putin, with those images. I don't think there's anything wrong with being some dude's cock holster. Do you know who thinks there's something wrong with one guy being some other guy's cock holster? Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. And so putting them in that position, creating that mental image and throwing it at them 
shames homophobes, shames those two homophobes by weaponizing the gay sex that they're uncomfortable with against them, by implicating them in it to a certain extent. So I did not have a problem with that joke. I did not think it was homophobic. I am on Team Colbert. That's all why I'm also not uncomfortable with those images of Putin and Trump kissing. I don't have a problem with two men kissing. I don't have a problem with Trump and Putin kissing. You know who's a problem with Trump and Putin kissing? Trump and Putin. And I have a problem with Trump and Putin. So that image is fine with me. It is a way of leveraging homophobia and the homophobic reactions against homophobes themselves. And I do not have a problem with that. All right. Let's turn to your member of Congress, your misogynistic, anti-choice, homophobic member of Congress. You know what else I'm going to guess that he's phobic about? You know what else I'm going to guess? He isn't into kink. I bet that image, him wearing a ball gag, is going to make him uncomfortable. And I think you should fucking go for it. And I would hope that the kink community wouldn't have a problem with that in the same way that the gay community didn't have a problem with Stephen Colbert's joke. Michael Musto is gay. I'm gay. Eli Sanders, host of Blabbermouth, the political podcast I'm on every week, he's gay. Neither he nor I had a problem with it. And when you looked at all the tweets online under Fire Colbert, all the people screaming and yelling about how unforgivably homophobic this joke was, they weren't fucking gay people. They were straight people. If you went and looked at their Twitter bios, they were right-wing Christian anti-gay gay people coming to the defense of gay people when it meant they might be able to get a high-profile pro-gay liberal like Stephen Colbert fired. Yeah, no. And I think the same logic and the same standard applies here. This is not mixing kink shaming with resistance politics. There's nothing about that image that – Slams or slimes people who enjoy ball gags. It slams and slimes this member of Congress who is probably not someone who thinks that people who enjoy ball gags should be allowed to enjoy them or that they can enjoy them in a healthy way, which of course they can. So, yeah, associating an anti-sex, anti-choice, homophobic, misogynist member of Congress with a sex toy Enjoyed by sex-positive, kink-positive people, it doesn't shame the sex-positive, kink-positive people. It shames the sex-negative, kink-negative, misogynistic, anti-choice, homophobic member of Congress, and I say go for it. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm actually calling for a friend of mine. He's a 29-year-old guy in the Bay Area, um, uh, straight, and he's been dating a woman for a couple of months now. And uh, things have been going really well, uh, but the one issue that they've been having is money issues. So they're basically making the same amount of money, but he feels that he's putting in a significant amount uh, more financially into the relationship. Uh, and also, he comes from a family background where he's um, really frugal. Uh, so he prefers to eat in, she wants to eat out. And uh, what he finds is even though everything aside from the money issues seems to be going incredibly well for him, uh, this keeps uh, kind of haunting him. So I'm wondering if you have any advice for how he should deal with this. He's tried speaking with her, and uh, she's been receptive, but nothing has really changed. So, uh, yeah, would appreciate your advice. Thanks. Money is one of those things that you really want to make sure you're on the same page about early in a relationship. It's almost right up there with kids and religion and sexual orientation and something else I think should be up there but all too often isn't sexual compatibility. It should be up there with money and kids and religion when it – you're thinking about dating someone and if you're not on the same page about money or religion or kids and if you're not roughly sexually compatible, there are no perfect matches. 
maybe you shouldn't be dating that person. Maybe over the long run, that thing that you want to overlook because there's so much else about this person that works for you is going to swamp what works for you about this person and the relationship is going to fall apart. Your friend has attempted to speak to this woman to no avail. Nothing has changed. Now, maybe your friend is a little too tight-fisted and he needs this woman to loosen him up to make him not such a fucking cheapskate and get out there in the world. But if they make the same money and she always wants to go out to eat, then what your friend needs to say to her is, I'm happy to loosen up a little bit, but we have to split these bills because I can't pay and I shouldn't have to pay for everything just because I have the penis and you have the vagina and your friend should be that blunt with her about it. They both make roughly the same money. He's willing to go out with her more than he might go out on his own. Hopefully she's willing to stay home with him a little more often than she might have otherwise or might have opted to otherwise. And there's some compromise, some balance they can strike, some meeting halfway that's I think possible in a case like this and perhaps not possible around sexual compatibility, and they both give a little. But they both got to start slapping their credit cards down together on those checks. And if she won't, well, then this is irreconcilable difference territory. This is deal breaker territory. This is price of admission your friend is unwilling to pay territory, literally a price of admission he is unwilling to pay to be with her. He's not willing to pay for everything they do out together, most of which is her idea and about her desire to go out. So, yeah, your friend needs to have a conversation with his girlfriend that risks ending this relationship. It's really a relationship extinction level event kind of conversation that he needs to have with her because money, religion, kids, sexual compatibility, those are things you want to suss out early on. And if you're not on the same page about those things early on, you want to get out early on. Hi, Dan, 20-year-old straight female from the Northeast. I'm calling you, though, to get your advice on handling a relationship of a close friend of mine. Now, I already know how that sounds, and I can already hear you saying to butt the fuck out. But just hear me out. She's also 20 years old, but she's dating a 64-year-old man. It's not so much the age difference that makes me a bit uneasy as the other factors that could lead this to be a potentially unhealthy relationship. So she currently lives on a farm in exchange for room and board, and he's actually the owner of the farm. That immediately raised a red flag for me, seeing as he's her sole source of livelihood at the moment. Um, But additionally, his wife just passed away about four months ago, and he started hitting on my friend's mom only to turn to my friend once he realized she wasn't interested. Now, dating older men isn't particularly new for her. She's dated 30 and 40-year-olds before, but she's also struggled severely with mental illness, including depression. And without going into too much detail, those relationships have been incredibly unhealthy with issues arising primarily uh, around the fact that these men were at very different places in their lives and because of that had very different expectations. When I lightly alluded... uh, to a few of my reservations about the relationship to her. She wasn't upset, but she told me she was surprised because everyone else around her, including her friends and her parents, who are this man's age, mind you, are fine with it, saying, we just want you to be happy. Now, of course, I just want her to be happy as well, but I've seen this happen with her before to absolutely devastating consequences. Should I try to talk to her more? If so, how? Or am I just crazy for being this concerned and shocked that I'm the only one that seems to be? It's possible that your friend's past unhappy, tumultuous relationships with older men, men who were 30 or 40 years old, exists on a separate and parallel track to your friend's problems with mental illness, with depression. And that 
the relationships with older men didn't induce the depression or the mental illnesses and were a reflection of it. And it's also possible that your friend had past unhappy relationships with older men and that this relationship with this particular older man is a better relationship with an older man. Yes, it's very squicky. Yes, the power differential, particularly with him providing her with room and board and him being her sole means of income and him hitting first on her mom before turning to your friend, all of that is very squicky. I recognize the squickiness inherent in all of that. But the issues you want to drill down on with your friend aren't older men, depression, mental illness, but you need to pull them apart. Are you getting help with your mental illness and your depression? Are you in a good place now? Is this guy – you're dating this guy now. Is he a better guy than these other guys were? You know, it's totally possible that there are people out there listening right now who are friends, who are your friend's age, who dated more age-appropriate – I know that's a loaded prejudicial term, but more age-appropriate partners that they had terrible experiences with, dated people who were their same ages that – and the relationships were awful and contributed in some way to their depression or their mental illnesses or weren't helpful uh, when it came to their depression or mental illnesses. And then you couldn't just blame the age difference. You'd have to look at the particulars of those people. And I think it's kind of, if I may use a college campus word, kind of a little ageist to blame ages here when maybe your friend has a preference for older folks. There are gerontophiles out there. There are people who prefer to be with older partners. And this particular older guy, as squicky as some of the other details might be, is a better guy for him than those other older guys who are younger older guys were. So you might want to touch base with her mom who passed on this guy and some of her other friends who've taken a glance at this guy maybe and decide collectively whether there needs to be an intervention for your friend who, it needs to be said, is an adult and can make her own choices including really bad choices. Sometimes when friends make really bad choices, like let's say this is just a complete shit show but your friend doesn't see it, there's really nothing you can do except say to that person, when you realize – if you ever realize you want out, not when, if you ever realize that this is a bad situation and you want out, I'm there for you. Reach out to me. I will do what I can. I will send you a bus ticket, a train ticket, a plane ticket. I will help you extricate yourself from what may seem an impossible situation to extricate yourself from because of the financial dependence on top of the relationship. Fang, just know that if you ever want to get out, if it's bad – and I'm not saying it's bad, but you know, from the outside, it looks a little squeaky. If it's bad and you need out, I'm here to help you. And sometimes that's the best you can do. And sometimes planting that seed isn't just the best you can do. It is really helpful actually because it puts it in your friend's head that they have an escape hatch, that they have a ripcord that they can pull, that they have friends out there that will come through for them and it may accelerate the pulling of that fucking ripcord if indeed it's as bad a situation as you believe it to be. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight, cis, married woman in my mid-30s on the East Coast, and I'm calling with a question about disclosure. My father came out as gay and left my mom about seven years ago, and for many reasons that I won't go into that process was very bungled, and our family is still reeling from the emotional fallout. I've tried to make space to have a relationship with my father and more recently his boyfriend of about four years. I've met his partner a few times, but only recently were they both invited to visit the city in which me and my sister live. They were going to stay the weekend in my sister's home with her husband and two small children ages seven and four. 
My sister has never met my father's boyfriend, and in an effort to learn more about him, she Googled his name, where we learned that he was convicted in 2007 of sexual battery of a minor for assaulting a nine-year-old boy. None of this was hard to find. The sex offender registry and corresponding articles are the first thing that come up when you search his name. And my father confirmed this information after we sent an email asking if it was true. All of this is painful and confusing, but my question is about disclosure. I feel strongly that this information should have been shared as soon as my dad decided that he wanted me and my sister to have a relationship with his boyfriend. My husband questions this and thinks that his boyfriend has a right to privacy, and since we don't have children, this information was not necessary to share. My father, obviously, feels that this information is quote-unquote embarrassing and not necessary to share and wanted to prevent us from passing judgment before getting to know his partner. Am I being unreasonable in expecting this to have been shared earlier? Is it only relevant to share once children are involved? My sister and I are close, and I'm very close with her children. So what do you think, Dan? Your father says he didn't want you to pass judgment on his new boyfriend, his boyfriend of four years, not a brand new boyfriend, until you had a chance to meet him so that when – Theoretically, at some point in the future, this information was disclosed, not discovered, that you would weigh the person that you would come to know against this heinous crime that this person committed in the past and that you would maybe be able to see him as a human being who would made a terrible, terrible mistake for which he is extremely contrite and has gotten help to recover from and made amends for and would never ever in 100,000 million years do again and had some perspective on his own uh, – on the magnitude of, of the, the wrong that he had done. But you'd met the guy. You'd met the guy four times, you said. The moment to disclose had come and that moment came when your father made arrangements for his boyfriend to come to the city where you and your sister live and stay with your sister who has children who are close to the age of the child that his boyfriend sexually battered and is on a sex offender registry for having sexually battered. This isn't about a fuzzy age of consent issue. This isn't about somebody who said they were 19 on Grinder and was actually 16 on Grinder and the age of consent in this state was 18 but one state over it was 16. No, no, no. This is a prepubescent child, nine years old. A year and a half or two years older than one of your sister's children with whom your father had arranged for him to spend time in the house with. No, no, no. Not OK. Your father shot the bed here. He failed you guys. He failed you. He failed your sister. He also failed his boyfriend because your sister found this out about her father's boyfriend in the worst possible way by Googling him and discovering the sex offender registry and the articles about what he had done and what had happened. So not only does she not feel safe having this guy in the house because this was information that I think she is as a parent, has a right to, was being withheld from her. But she's also not going to feel safe with your father, that your father was more concerned for – slow rolling this out to the extent that it may never have been disclosed than he was for the safety of his own grandchildren. I'm not saying that your father's boyfriend is currently a threat or a danger to kids, but still. And if not their actual safety, then the psychic safety of their parents. I don't think that your sister and her husband are ever going to feel comfortable trusting your father or his judgment ever again. 
They're certainly not going to feel safe or comfortable leaving their kids alone with your dad, not because he's going to molest them, just because he's demonstrated such colossally piss-poor judgment where they're concerned. So yeah, no, I disagree with your husband. Uh, I disagree with your father. I am on team you and your sister that this should have been disclosed and your father's defense that he wanted you to meet this guy and get to know him a little bit first before this was disclosed doesn't cut it. It doesn't wash because you had met this guy and you had gotten to know him and so the time for disclosure had arrived and it arrived before arrangements were made for where your father and his boyfriend were going to stay when they came to town to visit you guys. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old gay woman living in Columbus, Ohio. Um, I grew up in a very conservative Baptist home and came out to my parents almost two years ago. Um, my mother hesitantly accepted me at first. I could see that she needed time to process but would possibly come around. But when my controlling father got involved, the family message became, you are possessed by the devil and need to change. And he even threatened to come find me and take me back to our home state to fix me. I cut off ties with them for my own safety and well-being, but I still contemplate whether to reconnect with my mom. As Mother's Day is coming around, it always feels heavy at this time of year. I miss my mom a lot, and I know she's making choices to listen to my father, but I wish that I could stay connected with her. I have this journal that I write in called Dear Mom whenever I miss her and want to talk. And every once in a while, my father reaches out to say, we love you and miss you, which pisses me off because his love is qualified and limited. I have a wonderful support group of friends and family here in Columbus, but I don't know if I should move on and forget about my biological family or continue to be hopeful to reconnect with my mom at some point. I'm not really sure what to do. Do you have any thoughts? I want to say that I hope your father's threat to have you kidnapped and to forcibly change you somehow was an empty threat. But I have met people whose fundamentalist Christian or super conservative Muslim families have literally had them kidnapped, have literally arranged to drag their kids away and not only minor kids. I know people who – I've met people. I've talked to people whose families kidnapped them, threw them in cars and dragged them physically, bodily to exorcists, to some sort of crazy – snake-handling Pentecostal church where people laid hands on them and tried to cast the gay devils out. So you have to take that threat seriously. You say your father reaches out to you occasionally to say that they love you, although it's conditional, and miss you. And I think you need to call your dad on that. However he's reaching out to you, hopefully it's at a safe distance. Hopefully you don't know exactly where you are because you rightly don't feel comfortable with them knowing where the fuck you are because these threats were made and you have to take them seriously. But whatever channel he's using to reach out to you, you should reach out or clap back or slap back to him and say, do you? Do you love me? Because I don't. I don't have that impression based on the things that you've said and I'd also like to know whether this threat is still operative. I'd like to know whether I should move through the day every day worried about my family or you kidnapping me and dragging me back to wherever the fuck to fix me or change me, which for lesbians in some circumstances has meant arranging for the rapes of daughters who are lesbian and that you certainly have to take seriously, not just an exorcism but – tossing in a bonus rape for free and then see what your dad says. It's possible that he said those things in anger. 
it's possible that he'll lie to you and say that he said those things in anger when he meant those things. But maybe he said them in anger. Maybe he regrets them. Maybe he needs an opportunity to take them back. Maybe he doesn't remember saying them. I know some people who when they came out – I have a good friend. When they came out, parents said the worst possible things they could think of to them and then they never addressed it. It was never brought up ever again. It was never discussed and no apologies were preferred until my friend in this case – I don't want to get too specific because I don't want to embarrass him – called his parent and said, did you mean this? And the parent meant it at the time and wasn't – bringing it up because they didn't want to reopen old wounds. They didn't want to hurt their kid again by revisiting that horrible thing that they had said. And so they never felt comfortable apologizing for it even though they wanted to apologize for it. So give your dad the chance to apologize. See what he says. But you don't need your dad's permission or buy-off and you don't need to be comfortable with your dad to reach out to and have some sort of connection to your mom. You can be in touch with family through some sort of special social media account, not your actual Instagram or Twitter account or Facebook account, not an actual social media account where they can see where you are and who you're hanging out with and begin to predict when you might be where because that will make you feel even less safe than you may already. But having a Twitter account where you can DM with your mom and that's all that you're going to do there or having a phone number that you call your mom from, having a special toss-away cheapy cell phone that you can call your mom from or text with your mom from or an email account, a Gmail account that you can write to her from and hear back from her at. I don't think that limited kind of contact from a distance will put you in any greater peril than you already are. Your family sounds like it's been absolutely horrible. Horrible families sometimes come around. But you don't know that they've come around if you don't answer the phone. My first boyfriend when I was 18 years old grew up in Paducah, Kentucky and his father was a Baptist minister, Baptist like your family. And when he came out, his father beat the shit out of him and he came out because dad found his journal, beat the shit out of him, broke his arm, threw him out of the house. And my boyfriend then 16 or 17 years old walked to Chicago from Paducah, Kentucky and got himself into school, went to college. And that summer when he was 28, more than a decade later, I am in his apartment when the phone rings and he answers it and it's his father calling to apologize for what he had done. So it's possible that kind of 180-degree change is possible. But you won't know it happened if you don't answer the phone. You won't know what happened if you don't when your father reaches out to you in this weird way once in a while if you don't reach back. And if what you discover when you reach back, when he reaches out and you reach back and you contact him or you reply is that nothing's really changed and there's still this anger and this condemnation and you're the devil and you need to be kidnapped and dragged off, at a certain point, you are within your rights to cut off all contact, to just excise them from your life. And your mother can live for you in your journal and your father can, at that point, be dead to you. Hi, Dan. 29-year-old female in a Midwestern city here. My husband and I have been together for seven years and married for almost two. We've always been on the fence about whether or not we wanted to have children. After the election, I started to feel strongly that bringing children into a post-Trump world is a terrible idea. Not to mention, I find the idea of being a pregnant person during this administration frightening and exorbitantly expensive. 
In fact, I'm now even considering getting sterilized. I have to be on high hormone birth, birth control for a medical reason, so an IUD or other forms of birth control aren't an option for us. I mean, even if we can manage to ITMFA, we'll still be feeling the effects of what this administration has wrought for years, maybe decades. When I try to imagine 50 years into the future, I don't see brighter days ahead. All I see are a myriad of problems and no good solutions on the horizon. I thought that as the months post-election wore on, I might start to feel differently after the shock wore off, but instead I find myself feeling more strongly about this by the day. So am I being irrational here? Is Trump a bad reason to decide not to procreate? I will be uncharacteristically brief in response. Even if you don't want to bring kids into the world, there are kids in the world who need parents. You have the option of adopting or fostering if you don't want to bring more kids into a world where Donald Trump is president. From a more practical political point of view and deeply cynical point of view, Trump voters are not going to stop reproducing just because Donald Trump is president. If anything, it's going to kick their gonads into high gear and if we don't want to be outnumbered and outvoted – by little Trumpsters in uh, 18 years, we might want to be kicking out some little liberals and little progressives to match and beat the little Trumpsters at the ballot box 18 years from now. I can't imagine that's very helpful, but that is my POV. We're going to take a quick break from your calls because there are scientists and sex researchers out there hard at work trying to figure out what we're doing, who we're doing, and who we are. We like to invite researchers with newly published studies onto the show for a segment we call What You Got. Joining me by phone for this What You Got, Brianne Helmer is a doctoral student studying social psychology at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. Hey, Brianne. Hi. So what do you got? Well, um, I was really interested in trying to understand different influences on sexual behaviors, um, specifically what types of factors might make a person be more willing to engage in sexual acts with an incongruent partner. So by incongruent, I mean like a straight man wanting to have sex with another man or a straight woman wanting to have sex with another woman. But you didn't look at gay people, how drunk they have to be to have sex with opposite sex partners. You're just looking at straights and how much booze they need before they break. Yes. So in the first study I did, I only looked at heterosexual people. It was conducted in a really small rural Midwestern town um, in Illinois. So it's really hard to find enough gay people to really like (laughs) analyze that many. (laughs) Um, Because there's like, you know, 10 in the whole town. Um, I did do a follow-up study, but we haven't published anything on it yet, including homosexual participants. So hopefully I can talk to you about that in the future. Okay. So tell us about the straight people. How drunk do you have to get them? Is that the study here? Well, sort of. So they got themselves drunk. Um, We were standing outside of the bars late at night and we were carrying around tablets because we're the little research nerds that we are. And we wanted to collect data on these people who were drunk in their natural environment, just going about their own night. So I created a little short video, it was about 40 seconds long, of either a man or a woman sitting at a bar alone drinking, talking to the bartender, just saying they're looking to see where their night's going to go. And then I also had some other questions on there about like how much alcohol had the person consumed that night, um, their willingness to engage in different sexual activities with that person in the video. So just, you know, 
sit around, have drinks with them, leading all the way up to asking them, would you have sex with this person? And then how attractive they found that person. Mm -hmm. Um, Participants were handed the tablet and they were randomly assigned to see either the male or the female actor in the video. So the female participants, like half of them saw the female in the video and half of them saw the man in the video. So we didn't really try to um, match the person in the video based on who we think they might want to have sex with naturally. We've randomized that. So it was a really cool experimental component that we haven't seen much in the literature. Mm -hmm. And so what did you find? Um, So what we found was that in general, when we didn't look at other influences on sexual behavior, the men were more willing to have sex with the female in the video, which makes sense. They're all straight men. They should be more willing to have sex with her and they're more interested in casual sex. When we examined the female participants' willingness with both partners, it was pretty low overall. So the females in our sample weren't very sexually interested in either partner. Um, it could be because we had very few women in there, or there could be you know, other external pressures for them to um, not be as honest about their sexual willingness in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we examined the alcohol component in relation to sexual willingness with these two different partner types, we found that the men in the sample as they had consumed more alcohol became more sexually interested in the man in the video. Um, And just generally we're always interested in having sex with the woman. And we didn't find the same pattern for the women. Um, Basically they became a little more sexually willing with either the man or the woman in the video, but it only increased slightly with the number of drinks. So it wasn't as pronounced as, but the, I mean, I mean this, this goes to, you know, an old joke on college campuses, but like what's the difference between a straight guy and a, gay guy and it's a you know the old joke was a six-pack and not a, abs, yeah. a six-pack of beer is that what you've discovered that if a guy is drunk enough he might so yes and no um what i'm thinking is you know alcohol might have just kind of reduced their inhibitions a little bit maybe some of these men who might be thinking about doing these behaviors on their own um, we're just a little more honest in their responding. So mm-hmm. I think it was probably more those men's responses became a lot stronger than some of the other men who would never do it. And that's how we saw this effect of, um, yeah, as they drink more, maybe they're a little more interested in this idea of having sex with this other man. Um, but again, the sexual willingness levels weren't like through the roof. They just significantly increased. So it's more like they're kind of entertaining the idea so it wasn't like alcohol induced homosexual desire but maybe it was a disinhibitor <laughs> somebody who is curious about gay sex might be more willing to admit that after having uh, enough to drink yes yeah that's how i would look at this um alcohol does not cause people to be gay <laughs> um, <so. laughs> that explains why we, all of my alcoholic grandparents were married to opposite sex partners because if alcohol caused people to be gay <laughs> i wouldn't be here because all of my grandparents would not have had opposite sex partners um you know and there is the question you know the takeaway here then isn't if there's some straight guy that you think is hot get him drunk yeah no absolutely don't do that i'm definitely not promoting that but you know it might give you if you're interested in maybe like approaching him maybe it'll give you like some sort of form of courage to kind of feel him out and maybe try to have like an honest discussion to see if he is interested in you and then there's also when it comes to drinking there's the issue of consent like you can't hope somebody gets drunk enough to want to fuck you because at a certain point they're going to be too drunk to consent to fuck you and that's going to make everything awful and make you a bad person taking advantage of somebody who is incapacitated and you don't want to do that because you don't want to rape somebody 
Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's really hard to determine consent when you are drinking. So it's always better to play it safe and probably have sex when you're sober than when you've had any alcohol, because it's hard to tell the effects of alcohol on people's cognitive capacity. I, I want to jump back to the to the women in the study. Uh, there was this mm-hmm. famous study, and and I can't give you the sites because uh, I smoke a lot of pot and they're not right here in front of me. But they there was this famous <laughs> study on a college campus where they walked up, to, where they sent you know a hot guy and a hot girl out, and a hot guy approached women and said, would you like to have sex right now? And got mostly no's, almost entirely no's. And a hot woman approached men on the same campus and asked guys if they wanted to have sex right now and got a lot of yeses. And people looked at that study and said, you know, men are much more willing to take a risk, much more sexually impulsive uh, than women are. Women are much more reserved and much more careful and cautious. And, you know, women are the repositories of, you know, monogamy and commitment and fidelity and, and, and sobriety around sexual choices. And men are just you know, testosterone, so dick monsters. But then the study was recreated pretty recently. We talked about it on the show where they showed pictures to men and women and that they, what they told them and told the women was you can have sex with this person. No one will ever know. No harm will come to you. There will be no violence. And in that recreation of the study where women were reassured about things that women might be concerned about, like intimate partner violence, which is a, a real concern, like slut shaming, which is also a real concern, women were much likelier, almost as likely as men, to agree to anonymous impulsive sex. So when you say that the women were no more likely, you know, when they watch the attractive guy in the video and they're standing there looking at the iPad, were a lot less likely than men, the men you were studying, to say, yeah, I'd fuck that dude. Do you think that was because women have lower desire or do you think that's because those women had that you know uh, that that pressure on them still even in your study where they were worried about violence or worried about slut shaming that there were other considerations that that weren't perhaps being measured yeah i definitely think you know women are probably just as sexually you know interested as men are Um, i am familiar with both of those studies that you're talking about and i think you know one downfall to my study is we're just showing them a picture of a person and just saying like is this a person you want to have sex with, but they don't have more information surrounding that. So in the second study that you were talking about, they did get a little more information. Like there's no violence, like no potential threats to you or your reputation. Mm -hmm. So they had a little more reassurance, which we weren't able to get, give them in our study. So I think maybe attractiveness and alcohol aren't, what drive women's sexual decision-making. There are a lot of other factors that we really need to measure, which we were unfortunately not able to measure in our study. But the result of your study, the takeaway, we already said what the takeaway Mm -hmm. isn't, but the takeaway for the general public isn't get somebody drunk and maybe they'll fuck you in a a same-second counter. What is the takeaway here, do you think? Um, I would say that there are a lot of different influences on our sexual decision-making. We need to continue doing research on this topic, but also that people might be more sexually fluid than they have reported being in the past. And that could be based on this changing environment where people are more open about these things. People can call into radio shows and talk to people about their sexual interests and things. Um, So I think we're just seeing more openness. Awesome. Uh, What's the study called or what was the title of the study and where can people who want to read it for themselves find it? The study is called Sexual Willingness with Same and Other Sex Prospective Partners, Experimental Evidence from the Bar Scene, and it's in the Journal of Social Psychology. Um, and it just came out a few weeks ago, and the final version should be coming out later this week. Brianne Helmers, doctoral student studying social psychology at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. Thank you so much for uh, coming on What You Got with us. Really appreciate it. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savage at Risk Youth. 
I'm a 20-year-old cis gay male living in Austin. I have a question about exes and friendship. I dated a guy for a little over a year, and we had an amicable breakup, deciding that we'd both like to be friends one day when we're ready. We talked about how we both loved each other's friends and didn't want to be just cut off from them forever. He and I kept in very minor contact, wishing each other happy holidays and whatnot. I got over him and told him that when he was ready to attempt to be friends, to let me know. Fast forward six months, and he decides that he's finally ready to meet. I get excited, and it goes very well. We talked and got food and played a board game and caught up, keeping it on a very platonic level. I mentioned that my 21st birthday was coming up and that I wanted to invite him, as well as his friends, who I miss hanging out with but haven't attempted to hang out with, as to not disrupt his healing process with the knowledge that his ex and his friends may be spending time together. He said he really wanted to go and that I should invite him and them. I gave him a week after we met to process everything. He didn't text me in that time. And when I finally reached out to him, he told me that he decided it was best that we don't be friends at this point until he's truly ready. Tonight, one of my good friends told me that he met with my ex to cook and have dinner with him. And it raised some emotions in me. Moving forward, my 21st is a month away, and I want to invite his friends, who I got close with, but haven't really talked to since the breakup in November, to my birthday party. My ex said he wanted me to invite him, but I don't know if his feelings have changed since then. Do I invite him? Inviting his friends and not him worries me because I don't want to make him feel uncomfortable. But he also felt comfortable enough to reach out to my friend, so he might be okay with it. Do I invite him anyway and let him make that decision himself? Also, I'm struggling with the idea of keeping myself available to him to just reach out to me whenever he's ready. He keeps me emotionally involved and on this hook, hoping that we might be friends one day. I want to respect his healing process, and I want to be there for him, but it takes a slight toll on me, just being expected to be patient and wait while he does what he says is best for him. Should I keep waiting for him? I want to be friends with him, but is what's best for me to just move on and forget about this idea of friendship that seems to be increasingly far off in the future. You are overthinking this. He's hanging out with someone that he met through you, a friend of yours. You should feel free to invite uh, a friend of his or someone you got to be friends with through him to your birthday party and go ahead and fucking invite him to your birthday party too. He can decide for himself whether or not he would like to be there or is ready to come and it sounds like he wouldn't like to be there and he's not ready to come and that he's already communicated that to you. So all you say when you invite him, you write him an email or you send him a DM and you say, look, I just want you to know that you're invited. I know you're not going to come. I know it's too soon and you're not ready but just I wanted to extend the invitation and I'm not going to be hurt that when you don't come, I won't be hurt. And you can consider this if you like, if you prefer, uh, an invitation a year and a month in advance to my 22nd birthday party. But I'm going to invite some people I got to know through you because I like them. You like some of my friends. You're hanging out with them. You're invited to. I'll see you at my 22nd. Stop wringing your hands. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old uh, cisgendered female living on the West Coast and – I will start at the beginning. I, about 10 months ago, got out of a five-year relationship where my partner of five years, after hearing that our landlords were getting divorced, acted very strange, went AWOL for an entire day, 
and then emailed me to tell me that he was no longer in love with me and wanted to end our relationship, but remain friends. So fast forward 10 months, I did everything you suggest when you're newly single, going out, meeting people, taking time, trying to find out who I was again since I was 20 when the relationship started. Now I found myself once again dumped for the second time after seeing someone for a couple weeks pretty intensely, like three times a week, dumping me and saying very much what my ex said. You're a great person. You're the perfect partner, but I just want to be single. And I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but it seems I don't orgasm easily and I've never orgasmed from penetrative sex. And I stopped faking because my girlfriend scolded me and said, that's not helping yourself or helping these guys. So I don't fake (laughs) and it's I just try to be myself and just try and be in the moment during sex and just enjoy it and let them know that it's hard for me when I don't really know someone and I usually have sex with these people on the third fourth or fifth date depending on how it's going but it seems like after that if they can't get me off they kind of off a date that I have suggested we go on and then go kind of silent on the texting front or calling front and then come back at me saying you're a really great girl you're perfect da 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 but I just realized that I need to be single and I'm trying not to take it personally but I don't know if All these guys that I'm dating are in their early 30s, and I don't know if there's something about being 30 that makes them freak out about being in a relationship. I'm not sure. I'm just trying really hard not to see it as my problem. So I guess my question is, why do I keep encountering this? Is there something that I should learn or know about from this situation? Well, there is a lot going on here and I think you are misreading the situation. You were in a five-year relationship. There's a lot of people your age. You're 26 years old. There's a lot of people your age who haven't been in a five-week relationship. The relationship ended. It ended for reasons. He didn't want to be with you for the rest of his life. Perhaps the divorce of your landlords or neighbors helped him to see that or realize that and it was a shit or get off the pot moment for him and he got the fuck off the pot. And that's sad and that's heartbreaking and you pick yourself up and you go on and you make it sound like you've been dumped after 25-year relationships for these exact same reasons. But it sounds like there's just actually two relationships we're talking about here, Mr. Five Years and Mr. Two Weeks. And as I like to say, every relationship you're ever going to be in is going to fail, fail in quotes, until one doesn't. And you've been in two when you're 26 years old. I was in a lot more than two by the time I was – your age that had begun and ended for reasons. You seem to be working really hard to blame yourself for this or to blame your pussy for this when it could just be a coincidence. Your pussy works the way it works and your pussy works the way most women's pussies work. You don't climax from vaginal penetration alone. If you're dating guys in their 30s 
and that surprises them or scares them away, then they're idiots and you're well rid of them. 75 percent of women can't come from vaginal penetration alone. 75 percent of women require more effort and more sustained stimulation of their clits through oral sex or the use of fingers or toys or vibrators in order to climax. You are normal. And if these guys want an abnormal woman, one of the 25 percent, or they want a woman who will fake it, that's not you and you shouldn't have to fake it for your own sake. What are you going to do? Spend 30, 40 years faking it for some guy so that he doesn't leave you because you won't fake it for him? You know, the, the temptation is always to look inside and, and find fault. You're in a couple of relationships that don't work out. You're the common denominator. What are you doing wrong? And we do have to be self-critical. We do have to self-assess because sometimes we are doing something wrong. And that's when you reach out to friends and that t that's when if you have a friendship with an ex, you ask them to really tell you the truth and then maybe you make some changes. But this thing that you've honed in on – that you're incapable of doing what most women are incapable of doing, that's not something you can change or should attempt to change or should pretend to have changed. Find a guy who can hear, look, I don't climax from vaginal penetration alone. I enjoy it. I enjoy the intimacy. Uh, but I require a little bit more sustained and focused effort. And here are my friends, the vibrators, or here's the kind of oral sex, and I'm going to grip your head and put it right where it needs to be. This is what gets me off. And that's the kind of guy you want to be with. You want to be with the kind of guy who enjoys the challenge. You want to be with the kind of guy who knows that you're normal, who knows that a woman's orgasm, a woman's pleasure is going to require some focused effort from him on his part and the rewards will be great if he invests the time and energy and effort. I mean ask yourself if this is really the problem that it takes a little more time and a little more energy and effort for you to come. Do you want to be with a guy who wouldn't put in that time, effort and energy for you? No. So if you lay that out, if you put that on the table and the guy dumps you in two weeks or five years, I'd rather he dumped in two weeks for that if I were you. I'd rather he – Get the fuck away from me sooner rather than later. You have to view that as a superpower, a divining rod, a sorting hat where you get to make this disclosure. You get to share this truth, this fact about you and 75 percent of all women everywhere. And if he runs, good because the sooner all of those guys who are that insecure or that fucking lazy get the hell away from you, the sooner you're going to find yourself in bed with a guy that you like who will make an effort for you and enjoy making that effort, get off on making that effort, will eat your pussy for hours and his dick will be rock fucking hard the whole time. That's the guy that you want to get in bed with. And the only way you're going to get in bed with that guy is if you continue to be honest about who you are and how you work and how your pussy goes and how your orgasms arrive. So never, ever lie about that. Don't hide that. That is – that truth is your superpower. That truth is your sorting hat. Use it. Use it aggressively and use it without any embarrassment. That is not the problem. And I don't actually think there's any problem here. You're 26 years old. You got one five-year relationship behind you. You dated a couple other guys, one for a couple weeks. It didn't work out. You are young. You will find a guy. Good luck. I'm calling in uh, regards to episode 553 where the dude is too quiet when getting a blowjob. Uh, I've also had the same problem. So my new girlfriend and I actually play a game called At Your Service.
where the person getting the blowjob or the oral sex has to instruct the other person step by step on what they like and what they want done next. And uh, and we actually play the game based on a lost bet. So if we're fooling around during the day and, and make a bet, then the loser would be at the service of the winner of the bet. And uh, it's really improved our communication skills and it also improves telling the other person what you like. And we found that it, uh, it's been very helpful in me being more vocal and more informative when I'm getting a blowjob. Hi, guys. I'm calling in response to episode 553 to the guy whose dick gets a little shy around the woman he cares for. The advice is great. I would just like to add that should this relationship go further, and I hope it does, to remember this and to never take her for granted. Um, when you guys are having awesome, amazing sex all in each and every way possible that you guys enjoy, remember when you were shy and cared for her so much that you couldn't get it up and never take her for granted. Hey, Dan, this call is in regards to the caller episode 553, you couldn't get it up with the girl he really liked. Uh, as someone that has experienced that exact same thing on multiple occasions, uh, I found a couple remedies for it. Uh, one being establishing kind of sex talk, uh, establishing like sexting back and forth and kind of starting to see her in that light and see her in her sexuality. That kind of branches it out when you're really, really infatuated with someone. I find it's kind of hard to really bridge that connection of seeing them down and dirty and having fun with you between the on the pedestal and how beautiful and lovely they are. But when you kind of sex with them, it's it, it, for my, in my experience, at least, it, it kind of brought that to that and then kind of visualized that for me and, and instantly worked. That and weed. Weed helps a ton. Smoke a little weed, takes the tension off, everything feels awesome. That's a cool one-two punch. It's worked for me. Complete fail-safe. Works every time. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206 302 2064. Hey, Chicago, I will be in town on June 15th for a live taping of the Savage Lovecast with a very special guest, comedian Kristen Toomey. Get your questions answered by me live in person. Savage Love Live is going down at the Music Box Theater at 8 p.m. More info and tickets at humpfilmfest.com, where you will also find info about Hump Film Fest currently touring the country. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Read my column, Savage Love, every week in the East Bay Express and other newspapers all across the country. The Savage Love cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Love cast, and we will see you in Chicago on June 15th.